idea for all this really came from a dream? Yes, it did. Good evening and welcome to Knox Mente. Tonight's guest is Alan Greenfield. Alan is a longtime student of esoteric spirituality and Gnosticism, a study he began in 1960. A past elected member of the British Society of Psychical Research and National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP, from 1960, he has twice been the recipient of the Ufologist of the Year Award by the National UFO Conference. He is a Borderland Science Research Associate, BSRA, and as a futurist with a remarkable track record of giving accurate predictions of future history. <laughs> he is also a present past president of the Atlanta Science Fiction Organization, which pioneered the prototype for science fiction conventions as they are now commonly presented. Greenfield is also the author of several commercial books, Secret Ciphers of the, Uf Secret Cipher of the Ufonauts and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black are two of which have been critically acclaimed throughout the world. Alan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. You know, uh, there's a new edition of both the, the UFO books the together. Complete, it's complete called The Complete Secret mm -hmm. Cipher of the Ufonauts from Paranoid Press. I didn't solicit it, but they came to me and they said, why don't we put out a combined edition? And I said, sure, why not? And it's doing quite well. I, I just ordered that, by the way. I thought I was excited to see it together. It's the one I bought. Is that Well, excellent. I like to hear people say, I order it because they actually do pay royalties, which Yay. is more than I can say about a lot of uh, past uh, publishers. But uh, yes, and you well deserve it. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, it's all, you know, it's all I get. Uh, so uh, <laughs> starving artist and all that. So. And a retired stand-up philosopher. Yes, as I <laughs> like this. I got that from, I stole it from Mel Brooks from uh, History of the Earth, History of the World mm -hmm. Part 1. Uh, where he called himself a stand-up philosopher <laughs> when he was applying for welfare. I love that movie. Every, <laughs> yes. All I can think about is the Inquisition. Here we come. What a joke. Yeah. Oh, so crazy. Yes. <laughs> I think more of Jews out in space. One of the Jews in out space. In space. <laughs> We're slipping along and saving the human race. <laughs> Too many lines. Do you have to pay for that? I think it's five bars or whatever. And you know, today the media would probably call that anti Semitic. Oh, of course. Mel <laughs> <laughs> Brooks is the essence of Semitism. I, I, I realize that. But <laughs> right. the, I, I'm the other essence. So, you know, the sarcasm just doesn't go across well it's not yeah it's a humorless m movement happening right now now that's scary you know i mean uh his his film uh, uh blazing saddles which was early 70s it uses the n-word frequently and oh yeah in the context i mean that man doesn't have a bigoted bone in his body um his the famous line from one of his movies uh, which was something along the lines of, let's face it, without Jews and fags, there is no show business. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and it's cer certainly true. <laughs> For some reason, my favorite Mel Brooks movie is High Anxiety, and I'm not sure why. Uh, well, are you a Hitchcock fan? I am. I am. Well, and there I, you go. I did like that. I know, but it was just the one that just seemed like it worked, worked well. It didn't I'm fall apart at the end. You know. Like 
all of them, but uh, I, I suppose my favorite is uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. And, <laughs> and after that, Young Frankenstein. But then I'm a fan of horror movies, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, there you I, go. Yeah, oh, <laughs> well, which, Alan, which means what, Butcher, is... right, in German, I think? Her name. Anyway, I'll shut up. But Lily von Stupp. <laughs> the fuck. That's what it is. Yeah. When you get stooped, you've been stooped. Where's, where's Nate when we need the Yiddish translations? I know. I listened to the re-listened to your whole show on Six of Cups yesterday. It's so long. Oh well, yeah. I, it wasn't planned that way. They just said, "You want to keep going?" I said, uh, "Sure." And then it was like four in the morning, and they said, "Well, we're going to wrap up now." And I said, uh, "Okay, I really enjoy being." You know, the whole thing is so good, though, and uh, uh, it sure is. It, they it, really have it down, and no commercials. Yeah, that, that's I really an like exceptional that. interaction. With you. Yes, so do we. So again, it is just a great honor and pleasure to have you on Nox Mente. And uh, I feel blessed that Jerry is always able to get amazing people like yourself. So thank you for coming on, Dr. Greenfield. <laughs> oh, that's Dr. Greenfield. <laughs> doctor. Yeah, doctor. <laughs> and we are glad to have you on the other end of the line, yes? Oh, <laughs> uh, that was another thing uh, when I, I was talking about, before we started the show, about uh, some of my bad experiences on television. Uh, I mentioned in passing on uh, Ancient Aliens, a program I was reluctant to do because old guys like me are really, really cautious about being on something called Ancient Aliens. It's just too easy to slide into being one, you know. So, anyway, <laughs> they did it here. They, they had me pick the place, and uh, that was it was in, uh, I don't know, some one of the little towns above Atlanta, not Canton or any of that. Alpharetta. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's not no it was in downtown Ackworth or what passes. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. It was an old building that looked like a, um, I even wanted to shoot a little, you know, Heroin? YouTube movie there because it, it was like, a, it used to be a factory and then it was turned into a restaurant and now it's an empty building again because it's right next to the railroad tracks. But anyway, so they borrowed the building for a day and they interviewed me for about two hours of which two minutes got on TV. <laughs> and in the two minutes I mentioned in passing, well, you know, I, I, when I was at the, uh, the, uh, uh, Project Blue Book files, which were then stored in, in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and there's a story that goes with that. I was worried they were going to be destroyed. I went to my then Senator uh, Richard Russell, who had a lot of clout with the, because he was the head of the Armed Services Committee back when that meant something. And I said, there's a rumor it's going to be destroyed. And he said, well, let me get you a security clearance and you can go take a look at them. So I did. And I was looking through, I don't even remember what I was looking for, but I looked down and there was the recently retired Dana Von Braun. And I thought, 
Oh, wow. <laughs> what the hell is he doing here? That was my reaction at the time. And then I thought, a damn Nazi son of a bitch. But instead, <laughs> I, I walked over to him and I said, oh, Dr. Von Braun, I've admired all of your recent work. Because <laughs> I'm, not talking, I'm not talking about the V2 days or what he was calling his New York rocket towards the end of the war. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I said, so I'm kind of surprised to see you here in the, uh, the UFO files. And I tried to look at what he was specifically looking at, but I couldn't see it. And I'm, my saying this to you is longer than my whole conversation with him. It was like uh, three sentences. He said, well, you know, the stuff that we did, we had help. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do I pursue this? Standing <laughs> in the middle of <laughs> the secret files of Project Blue Book uh, with a uh, guy who uh, is known to change sides very quickly. Or do I just say, well, nice meeting you, sir. Have a great rest of your life before you go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that, but I thought it. I did think and I wondered which is going to well, make that it was happen. Like Ten seconds. I mentioned that in passing. Just to, well, it was probably thirty seconds, and that was what they featured on the show. You know, I of mean, course, yeah. You know, it's like when I get, well, what is the meaning of of life, Alan, uh, pro, or Professor, or Doctor Greenfield? What? And I'll say, well, the meaning of life is, oh, well, well, we'll get to that. But right now, a word from our sponsor, <laughs> so ridiculous, here at Can Canadian X Radio. Well, you've already brought two synchronicities in for me, so this is already good. <laughs> okay, then I'll mention Philip K. Dick because whenever Philip K. Dick comes up, I have tons of synchronicities within mm -hmm. hours, unless I look for them and then they don't happen. Go figure. Yes. Well, <laughs> Are, are you going to share your synchronicity? I, I, I know this is selfish, but I'm not. Maybe later in the show, perhaps. Okay. Perhaps, perhaps. Because there, it's only relevant to a couple people, and I'd have to give a whole backstory. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. No, you don't. Most, most don't. of mine are, in and of themselves, individually trivial. Like, I'll look up a name that I have some vague interest in and turn on the television five minutes later and that person will be on tv you know yes oh i live for that and i it was again i really enjoyed all that kind of synchro stuff that was happening live time for you on six of cups mm -hmm. that yeah. it was giving me the chills well <laughs> yeah. i was too tired to no I won't say. yeah after four hours <laughs> now somewhere around three hours it began to occur to me that i'm old but that's <laughs> well doesn't like that happen older and older as the hours went by my uh, life passed in front of... no, okay. those young bucks uh, young bucks i swear uh well they think i'm amusing and so let's let's dive into this I'm going to keep you on track here. <laughs> You've got Good luck with out. that one. <laughs> She's a cruel taskmistress. Be careful. <laughs> but I'm no Ilsa, so don't say that on me. Uh, Alan, don't get me started. <laughs> so uh, I'm interested in looking at the earliest stuff. And I know there's great content uh, out there in the world. However, I... 
I, I want it here too. So the earliest memories you have in this life that stick out and um, certainly dreams can be in there and I am familiar with one at least, but what, what like in pop culture, things that inspired you and as far back as you can go? Well, I can go pretty far back. I mean, I, I just, I have good memories, not, uh, you know, continuous, but portions of memories going back to two. Um, I can tell you a really interesting story about dreams and memories. It took like 12 years for this to fulfill itself, but it'll take about five minutes. Oh, uh, you've got the floor. Okay. So when I was a, a, a really small child, I would Yes, I was about three, and I couldn't have been more than four because the house that I was then living in, which is a crucial part of the story, uh, we moved out of when I was four and moved up to a higher, if such a thing is possible, a better location in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, and uh, so I had a boogeyman, and the boogeyman was a light fixture in the living room, which was not a room I was often permitted to go into, uh, but it had this brown, I would almost say that it looked like an upside down uh, Hershey's kiss. And for some reason, I thought that if that light fixture saw me, that something bad would happen. I mean, what do you want from a three or four year old? You know, So I would sort of jump, the, the, the uh, uh, from post to post so that I couldn't be seen by what I called reflection, okay? I gave it a name, reflection, because it, it wasn't the light fixture itself. It was the reflection of the light fixture in this huge mirror over the mantle in the living room there. It was the standard layout for houses of, of that period, post-war, well, probably pre-war houses that... Uh, had become post-war um, divided into apartments because apparently after the war there were uh, World War II. We're talking about there were uh, it was a housing shortage, so a lot of people were sharing residences. Before television, they actually talked to one another, things like that. So uh, that was you know a scary experience, but lots of lots of little kids have boogeyman experiences. Many many years later. Oh, I'm leaving something out. So as a small child, I had a dream. I think it was, you know, the kind of dream that one would have. It's the first dream I remember. But I dreamed that a little uh, blue boy, uh, and uh, it was what would now be called psychedelic blue. It was electric blue, I guess you would say, uh, came out of the mirror and he looked exact a, a lot like me. And we grabbed each other's hands and we danced around in circles. And uh, thinking about it many years later, I thought, well, this was clearly a Freudian dream. It was just sort of trying, or maybe Jungian. It was trying to reconcile my fear of this reflection and saying, uh, there's nothing dangerous about it. You don't need to worry about it. It's just you projected into the mirror. I thought that was true until 1996. The reason I remember it was 1996 is A, that's the year my mother passed away, and B, it was during the Olympics. Um, 
I was house hunting with some friends and I took my youngest uh, son, uh, Randall, with me. And Randall was then a, I guess, a preschooler. So I was carrying him. And we were looking at this house near the Georgia Tech campus, probably not even there anymore. Um, and it was a very similar house, as I noticed, although I didn't pick it, it was picked by my friends, um, that we were considering um, moving into, at least during the Olympic period. They were charging fantastic amounts for houses in Atlanta during that period. Uh, I believe there are ugly terms for that type of uh, jacking prices up. But anyway, so I'm carrying Randall, and I uh, walked into the living room, having no expectations and no familiarity whatsoever. And there was a big mirror over a fireplace. And I looked in the mirror at myself and Randall, and I recognized my son is the little blue boy, the little electric blue boy that I had dreamed at, at the age of two or three. That's the story. Uh, Randall does indeed have, you know, some, or he did when he was younger, some features that were similar to mine, obviously, but uh, it was it was a dead ringer for that moment, which is frozen in time in my mind. So that was really a, a strange dream foreshadowing a reality that didn't manifest for whatever it was, 40 years. That's phenomenal. Did it have... Did it have a feeling at all of a that kind of deja vu that we get? Yes, and it also uh, was a you know sharp intake of breath on my part, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And then the people that were with me were wondering what that was all about. I, <laughs> I didn't care to share. In fact, I don't think I've ever shared that story until right now because most programs don't ask about dreams. That I mean, that really is remarkable, and it it falls under so many different. Uh, it, it overlays into a lot of this idea of consciousness escaping, and I and and particularly the fact that you did experience some of that deja vu vibe with it. Uh, I do remember '96 in Atlanta. Oh Lord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, my mother lived on uh, 15th Street, and that was right in the heart of where the Olympics were. Mm-hmm. And every year she complained because that was when the, uh, where the uh, road race went by on the 4th of July. And it, it was just very loud, you know, thousands of people running towards Piedmont Park. Uh, and people all over the country are going, where the hell is he talking about? This is in town, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, the place that uh, got burned down during the unpleasantness of the 1860s. But that's not important right now. What is important is my mother complained every year and she passed away suddenly and unexpectedly, although at an advanced age, the day before. And I have said to people who look at me oddly, uh, she died the 3rd of July, 1996, in order to avoid having to listen one more time to those people running down the street. (laughs) Uh, And I had to go down there and uh, basically uh, my eldest son and his wife were always stayed with with her during the uh, summer break from their college. And uh, 
I had to go up, up to her apartment and you know take care of uh, what to do with uh, her stuff because it was it was a condo, but it was a rented condo, and um, had a short time to do it. Well, I don't drive, so I took Marta. Marta is the <laughs> metropolitan Atlanta rapid, quote unquote, transit, quote Amen. unquote. System. That's amazing. That was my, exactly what I kept saying on the train. Uh, it reminded me of the train to Buchenwald. And in a way, it was the train to Buchenwald because it let me off at Art Center and there's still crowds of people everywhere. And it was just, I can't even remember why I'm bringing this up. Must have had something to do with what we were saying. Well, what's interesting is the 3rd of July 96, and I can't separate 369 out of out of that which is extremely significant so but let's let's move back further so back into your childhood what were the things going on in so firstly did you have a relationship with nature and since you're in the georgia area i i have to assume that it seems like nature is everywhere uh, and and then what were the things that inspired young young Alan that that could be considered pop culture? Mm, good question. Okay, the uh, my mother was a uh, I keep talking about my mother, but that's okay. What do you think, Doctor? We're, we're coming back to your mother, by the way. <laughs> okay, well, okay. <laughs> this is this has something to do. She was a daily. Uh, there were four theaters in Augusta, Georgia at that time. They were all on the same street, Broad Street, because it was basically the only commercial street in town. And uh, she would go to the movies every day. And for those she deemed appropriate, she would take me. First one she took me to was Destination Moon, based on the Heinlein fantastic, impossible story of men going to the moon. And I liked it so much, uh, it says in my baby book, she took me to see that six times. And since it only played, I assume, for two weeks, that means, you know, every other day. So I'm sure that had some influence on my future life. Uh, the next thing I remember is also movie-related. Uh, apparently, my father was in uh, D.C. and saw... Uh, the original version, I say the original version of The Day the Earth Stood Still, and was very impressed by it because it had this kind of documentary sort of flavor to it. He came back and he told my mother, you got to go see that. It's just, it's so realistic. It has Drew Pearson in it and blah, 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 blah. So my mother takes me and my mother had a habit of going into movies whenever she got there. She didn't look at the time. She didn't look at the start. She didn't, uh, they didn't throw people out at the end of a feature. So we go in in the middle. You have no idea what it's like to see Gone with the Men. Gone with the Men? Gone with the Wind? <laughs> <laughs> gone with the Men who are Gone with the Wind. Uh, make of it what you will. Doesn't matter. The point is... Love it. From the middle to the end and then sitting through the first part. You know, that's... So we come in in the middle of the day the earth stood still. And a few minutes later, Gort, you'll remember Gort, the friendly robot, picks up Patricia Neal in one of her major roles. 
and carries her into the flying saucer. Well, he only got as far as the door of the flying saucer before I said, Mama, let's go. Mama, let's go. That's scary. Let's go. And uh, it left a definite imprint on me um, because, of course, my later interest in uh, the UFO phenomenon is probably what I'm best known for. It'll be on my tombstone. He liked flying saucers, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> Tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock. No, but, but not the anal probing, right? That came later. My okay. case developed uh, there was something about my doctor and Vaseline. The day the Earth stood still, ironically, just played the other night on cable TV. That I and I I, I hadn't watched it in ages. It had been so. With long. Keanu or the old one? No, the original, okay. the only one. And uh, for me, it's it's the only one. And I sat through it and was stunned at how much of how much made it ha- has made it into pop culture. One liners, just all all of it. Of course, Iron Man and all that. It was uh, it was a trip to say the least to rewatch it after a very very long time. Sink. That's mm-hmm. in the category, and uh, I probably shouldn't mention this, but the uh, the evening that I lost my virginity, I was waiting for a young lady to arrive, and I turned on the television, and guess what was on TV? Of course, <laughs> yes. Uh, or to television so that was a memorable day too that was uh that how old were you when you lost your virginity uh let's see how old was i in 1965 i was 18 19 something like that oh yeah good that's probably good. end of 18 <laughs> that's I the year that. i was born oh, oh so there's up. a sink <laughs> Alan loses his virginity uh jerry comes out <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> so to speak. Do you want to rephrase that? Or re- I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, anal probe. Anal probes. Okay, we're yes. Make sure you're pre-lubed instead of allowing their nasty lube. So we. This is pre-show chat, people. Anyway, <laughs> so. <laughs> So this had a, a huge impact on you, of course, as you've mentioned, and we can look at look back and see how it's had an impact on you, thankfully. Uh, what else was going on that seemed impactful? Like, w- did you get outside and play? Did you make forts? Uh, were you an indoor kid? Were you a book nerd? Oh, no, well, no, I wasn't a book nerd that far back. Um, I took up books when the Tom Swift Jr. series came out. Tom Swift Jr. and his flying underwear machine, things like that. That was late 50s, so I was considerably older. Up until then, it was comic books and particular comic books, the science fiction comic books, but also the funny animal comic books, which when I became more or less an adult, or as close as I've ever been, I found out that they were done in those days by a guy named Carl Barks, who was a great comic book artist. And, is this uh, before Robert Crumb? Oh, way before. Yeah, okay. 
Robert Crumb was not even an egg in his <laughs> mother's uterus at the time. I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> Internal. <laughs> exactly. Uh, R. Crumb was uh, mostly known for underground comics. So, uh, true, true, true. Underground true. comics were much later. They were not even possible. Uh, when, I mean, I, I was a fan of EC comics, and they were literally confiscated by the government. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember going to get my latest edition of Tales from the Crypt and other, other things from a spinner somewhere in Florida, if I remember right. And there weren't any. There was nothing but DC comics and funny animal comics. And Dell, I think Dell put out comics and then the, the, the ones that were amounted to cheat sheets on classical books. And no EC comics, and I'm too young to know what had happened, but apparently they d decided, uh, based on Dr. Wortham's fa famous book, uh, that uh, uh, said that uh, comic books were corrupting children. They picked, they picked on uh, on East, uh, East, uh, educational comics, as they were known, and uh, confiscated them, and they went out of business except for one title, which they changed from a comic book to a magazine and called it Mad. Mm -hmm. Oh, Started. yes. And I uh, switched over to, to Mad. But when I, uh, the nature part of it, if, you're, if you are from a place like Augusta, Georgia, which is on the Savannah River, just across from the uh, place where they were making the plutonium triggers back in the day of the the coming nuclear war, you know. Lest we not forget. Yes, and, and dripping tritium into the river that we were all drinking from. Um, I'm the sole survivor of that picture. <laughs> they wanted to make us glow in the dark. Yeah. There were people that walked around Augusta with uh, gas masks. People didn't quite know what nuclear energy was, but they were like, they, they picked up a town and moved it out of the, the, the area where they were making the, the plutonium triggers. And there were two um, nuclear power plants there too. I think that was part of the processing. I don't know, many years later, I was there to protest its existence. It's sort of still there, but in any case, um, if you live in that, area. It's a swampy area there. Even occasionally alligators seen that far up the Savannah River. It runs all the way to Savannah, uh, Georgia, USA, on the Carolina border. Um, so I spent a lot of time outside uh, enjoying the insects. They didn't enjoy me so much. Chasing birds, going up to the reservoir because my parents forbid me to do that. So I went up there frequently and uh, behind our house was a backyard. And then what my parents called, and so I called it the back backyard, which didn't actually belong to us, but they found some obscure law that if you improve it and nobody challenges you for eight years or something like that, it becomes yours. So I would, play in the back backyard because it didn't have grass. It had uh, dirt and kids love dirt. So I would take my little um, uh, road work toys out there and build roads. And I did a lot of that. And I, uh, the flora and fauna was so rich 
at that time in that place. Uh, my mother later described Augusta as buggy. And uh, I think it was back then. I suspect that it's not now because I see less and less wildlife. Uh, uh, even in the neighborhood I live in now, and which is the neighborhood I grew up in, in Atlanta, um, when I was a kid, you'd see the occasional fox, you would see um, uh, lots and lots of chipmunks, you would see, um, uh, well, you would see the evidence of gophers having passed through your yard, and uh, I don't see any of that here now, but uh, uh, my a dear friend Michelle tells me that she lives further out and across what passes for a river here at Hoochie. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've ever if you've ever done the river run and gotten out of your boat, you have no doubt that that is not a river; it's a sewer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, it it was it was uh, that was an adventure with the OTO members on a raft and I got out <laughs> because we were stuck on a rock and there was nothing under my feet. No There's symbolism there. Horrible <laughs> sludge beneath and uh, broken beer bottles, which I was barefoot. So it was, yeah, it was interesting. It was very interesting. That so, was foreshadowing for you there. Uh, no, no, that, no, that's that's the way it is with the OTO. You, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That you, you get in and you're going to go to the pool parties and have that was the Fourth of July too. Now that I think about it, and all sorts of events. And then the longer you're there, the slimier. <laughs> yeah. Finally, you reach the pinnacle positions of great enlightenment and discover <laughs> that slime is really what it's all about. We discover the rubber chicken. There was nothing. <laughs> rubber chicken with that alien it's, slime uh, all over it. <laughs> I won't even tell you about I, the I, of evil. About that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the rebel gene in you so much. I just so admire it and how um, free you are with, with, with. Isn't it amazing that I'm still free and the. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, you're a beacon in that way. Well, so, all right, let's go. Let's let's continue back backwards. Okay. So, in this period, uh, did you have as a young, as far back as you can recall? So, besides the Gork stuff, did you have classical? Did you have fears as a child, like you know, the thing under the bed or the closet, uh, that kind of stuff? Well. Reflection, the reflection of the light thing was. Definitely. Yes. But did that play out further or was that just in that particular? Oh, no, it did not play out further. I mean, that's, uh, it was, uh, I don't think I had any other uh, night fears until I was much older and started reading the Richard Shaver stuff. And then I, one night I was, oh, I guess I was 12 or 13 by then. Uh, uh, oh, that's a prime age. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it certainly is. And like, there are stories, but I'm not going to tell those. Uh, but <laughs> you know, I want because, those because if I tell those stories on the air, I'd have to mention names. If I mention names, some of these people are unfortunately still alive. Did I say unfortunate? 
Ufta. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not sorry. Um, uh, where were we? Oh, we were in my we were in Miami. My my father always liked oceanfront rooms. I'm not really sure what that was all about in the age of air conditioning, but he was a generation older than my mother and a generation older than anybody, I think, in terms of his way of looking at things. Uh, I once yelled at him about Lawrence Welk. Uh, but anyway, he... Oh, my uh, God, Lawrence Welk. I was so indoctrinated in Well, that. he may be your God. He isn't my God. <laughs> no, no, I know. It's memories I'd like to forget. Wonderful, anyway. wonderful. Yeah. Here are the Lillian sisters. He always had the hottest redheads on the show. <laughs> oh. oh, it's just so hard to sit through. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I had to because it was their house and their TV. But in any case... Um, um, I have no idea what I was going to say there. See what happens oh, when you get old? Me. Don't get old. That's my best advice. Let's make that so. So okay. 12 or 13, Florida, window front, you're fine. Okay. okay, so I had uh, uh, kind of, uh, quote, hooked up, unquote, with this uh, old guy named Bill Starkenstein who ran a, uh, don't laugh at the name. <laughs> it's the same. Bill Starkenstein, who... Um, uh, ran a little used bookstore, and because of the time period, which, you know, this is uh, late 50s, early 60s, somewhere in there, um, he had a lot of really, really major stuff. That was my earliest exposure to the, to the uh, quote fiction, unquote, of Philip K. Dick, but it was also my exposure to the Richard Shaver material in the original amazing stories from the 1940s. He just had bunches of copies of amazing and fantastic and was selling them for a dollar or two dollars or whatever. So I was reading that stuff for a couple of years uh, as a preteen, teen, tween, whatever I was at that point. Uh, and um, my parents always got me a separate broom because they could, and because I was a nuisance. And uh, so I was in my room on the oceanfront, and I fell asleep, and I started to have this really, really, really vivid dream about the Duros coming to get me. Now, if you don't know about the Duros, I'll be glad to endarken you. In darken us, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shaver, uh, who uh, I knew, um, I, well, I didn't know him then, but I eventually got to know him, uh, postulated the notion that there were, under the earth, there were vast caverns that at one time had been inhabited, in fact, the surface of the earth had been inhabited by uh, advanced races of beings, uh, the Atlans, the Titans, and they had left when our sun began to put out the kind of radiation that ages people. Uh, so those that were left in the cave became hero, uh, detrimental robots, because they... Um, 
became distorted beings because of the, the residual radiation that got even to them under the ground. But they still had all of these, what Shaver called mechs, machines that uh, 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 could uh, do all kinds of, all, all of the effects that you, you, you have read about in any kind of science fiction, particularly early science fiction, they had access to it. They were uh, not particularly smart, but they knew how to manipulate people's dreams and they knew how to lure people to their underground caverns where they ate them. A little bit of H.G. Wells thrown in there, but... Well, the Morlocks. Yes. Morlocks. Morlocks or <laughs> less locks. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the, point is, the less locks the more Nova you eat, but that's a deli story. Not- <laughs> uh-huh. How do you like free association? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so this dream was very, very vivid. I mean, I, most of my dreams are nightmares, but they're nightmares with clear, unresolved conflicts in my life that mostly now they're about money and aging and uh, going back to the house I grew up in and watching it dissolve around me. But I think that may be... Oh, wait. we'll get to that later. Okay. So um, this dream uh, might have put me off the whole uh, um, UFO slash shaver slash uh, underground cities slash uh, alternate dimensions, which is what I eventually settled on as... I don't think there are caves full of uh, detrimental beings, but I do think that there are portals or entrances, some of which are in caves, that lead to other worlds. And that dream was kind of a jumping off point. It was also kind of a watershed in the sense that, uh, or an ordeal in terms of initiation, that uh, uh, I could have run away from, but instead got more involved once I had uh, pulled myself together because it was there was no more sleeping that night. Um, but it didn't lead to you know my having endless dreams about that. My mother had a dream once that I was abducted by aliens, but uh, it didn't did involve she, any. Did she tell you about the dream? Yes, she did. Will you share that? Well, to the extent that I can. She said we were... Uh, she and I were out in our backyard, uh, which is about walking distance from where I'm sitting right now. And um, um, a UFO came down. Now, this is after I had already become active in ufology. And she, How old were you around this time? Around 14, I guess. Okay. And uh, um, uh, so I was going to UFO conventions, and I was already doing, you know, reading the books and doing what the, uh, what were then known as the teen ufologists were doing back then, which was a much smaller group of people than, than are involved in that sort of thing now. But um, she dreamed that the uh, flying saucer, I won't say UFO, it was clearly a flying saucer, came over and these little beings came down on some kind of beam. I've known a lot of... Uh, hardcore IV druggies that have very similar dreams, which to me is quite interesting if 
self-destructive. Um, these beings came down on these sort of spotter individual uh, web um, um, strands and picked me up and took me slowly up into the flying saucer. And my mother was yelling, oh, don't take him, don't take him. And apparently it was enough of an impression to her that she told me about it the next day, which was pretty much that's the story. I didn't come back, apparently. And I'm still not back. <laughs> of course not. What, this is, that's phenomenal, actually. What year was that when you were 14? 64. Oh, 61. Yeah, so, uh, something like 1961. 61, okay. So before yeah. Close Encounters Sorry, of Jared. Third Kind, which is like... Oh, way before Close Encounters. Yeah, the opening scene. I'm trying to remember when the Betty and Barney Hill case came, 40, broke the news. 64? 64, yeah. It was, it was post-47. Oh, way post-47. Pre-70. Yeah. 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 It was in the 60s. I thought it was in the 50s, actually. Maybe. Uh, no. When the, it broke, case was, broke the news. Now, I was already in ufology when the Hill case came along. There you go. I met Betty Hill once, but... Uh, uh, so what was your conclusion? Bullshit or, or legit? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. I do think that any case that is largely dependent on uh, hypnotherapy for mm -hmm. memories of it is more suspect than a case where there are spontaneous memories. Uh, that's true with reincarnation cases. It's true. Yes. The pleasing of the hypnotist is just one of those things that happens. And yes. uh, um, um, therefore, I, I give them less credence. But those people were as sincere as they could possibly be. Yes. I mean, there's an alternate theory about that. But the fact is what that allowed to happen, because it got so much publicity from uh, John Fuller's book at the time. Uh, I think it was Incident at Exeter, or was that his other book? In any case, uh, from that point on, people who had had abduction experiences, and I'm not talking about the classic contactees who are a, a more uh, debatable group of people. The Whitley Strieber types. Oh, no, that was much later. And, but that type of abduction. Yeah, well, I, no, I was thinking about people that were, uh, that claim repeated uh, 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 contacts with specific aliens from places that yeah. we now know they gotcha. couldn't be from, uh, like Venus, which is... Yes, that they that were, whole rash of stuff that came out. Yeah, uh, but that was 50s stuff, and uh, it was, it also, I'm, I'm about to do a series on my Facebook page about... Uh, occult fascism and it talks quite a bit about how the um the ufo contactee movement came to a very large extent out of the uh the uh fascist notice i don't say neo-fascist the fascist movement in the united states that preceded uh, world war ii and then of course got into a lot of trouble during the war um, um uh William Dudley Pelly was one of them, and then, then one of the major contactees who was an associate of that 
group, the IM group was uh, from Mount Shasta people there. They, they're not necessarily all of them fascists, but the, 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 the root of it was a group of people who were great admirers of Adolf Hitler. And <clears throat> well, they've, they've morphed into Scientologists now. Uh, well, there's I, the whole Maria Orsic stuff. Scientology and all, all tactics, that. rather. Oh, that's, I believe that's a modern fraud. Yeah. Okay, the, the Vril stuff? Well, no, not the Vril society as such. It existed, it was an interesting place, and the Nazi movement started at a Vril society meeting in mm. uh, 1920-something. No, no, it was in the teens. It was... Either during or before. Oh, it was during World War One for the Germans, anyway. But uh, but uh, apparently uh, uh, Rudolf Hess was a member of that, and uh, he brought Hitler to a couple of meetings and blah blah. But th that wasn't their orientation. Their orientation was uh, this uh, uh, based on the, the, the one of those inner Earth notions that there was a. Um, a race of beings uh, in the hollow earth who, um, and I'm, I'm not saying I believe any of this, I don't, but uh, th that uh, used a power called Vril. And, yes. And Vril, the power of the coming race, was by right, a right. famous writer. But and, the point and is now the in the Iron Sky movies too. And the, and the two of the group uh, were... Uh, sort of uh, the nuttier wing, if that's such a thing as possible, to the uh, to the Nazi movement in in Germany, uh, because it attracted fringe type people. Yeah. And until the Nazis came to power in 1932, I think 33, mm -hmm. um, they were a fringe group. They 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 sort of came to power by default and by luck or bad luck. Point is, they rose and fell, and the Brill Society, uh, pretty well documented by Willy Ley, who was an early defector from Germany when the Nazis came to power, he said they were, he just dismissed them as wacky people who believed in uh, a fiction book being fact. The inner Earth, yeah. Well, I wanted to. Wait, wait, let me, let me give you one more piece of information on that because it's. Okay. Crucial. Everything you've heard about Maria Orsic and all of this, um, um, the, the ladies of the of the real society, it was all men, and um, um, that they had long hair because that was their antenna to contact their their mm -hmm. source on Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. But that, that whole persona wasn't it all manufactured. It was kind of staged. It was manufactured by a. Nazi group on the internet yeah. that yeah. are still on the internet. In fact, uh, how were know, they on the internet in nineteen whatever? Oh, they, they it isn't that far back. Are you saying it, the, the story post, was manufactured? It was manufactured gotcha. late and and is retrofitted onto the Nazi past. In fact, there probably was no such person. They used some images of rather attractive young women as a way of bring it being a come on for uh, uh nordic ideas and from the nordic ideas they've uh, you know they they funnel the the most gullible into these neo-nazi organizations but i will say the same thing about that that i say about uh, wicca which is 
if you can find me something about about these women that are supposedly the real society central people that is before oh let's say before 2000 mm -hmm. i will concede that it has some validity but you won't find it because it doesn't exist if you can find something about wicca that exists before gerald gardner took up the idea in the 1930s right. yeah. then i will be glad to look at that book of shadows but i've looked at his the original I even yeah. almost bought it back when I had money, which is why I don't have money now. <laughs> <laughs> and I can assure you, it started with him and just- I, so, I agree with the gardener stuff. Wicca has always been a bone of contention with me. But I, wanna, I don't wanna get too far away from something we were touching on earlier, and uh, which is the caves and the inner earth stuff and portals. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to, get your take on so you already gave us a little bit about that but what is your take on and then as i was listening to just as a side note here your ideas about hellier and all that uh your opinion on the idea of caves and inner earth possible portals and all all that all that comes with that yeah, that's a very fair question, and one that I have spent a lot of time on and some experience with. Uh, first of all, I think Hellier is a really, really, really well done production. It really uh, deserves, you know, of at least a uh, HBO presentation. Although after uh, yes. the end of absolutely after the end of Game of Thrones, I'm not so sure HBO would be. I know. I know. <laughs> Because they wind up finding oh, with you, but Hellier is just—I think it's elegant. Or a dragon would eat them, you know. Or yeah, oh yeah, what a letdown! But Hellier was elegantly done. I'm a huge fan of it. They—they they won my heart with that. Me too. They did seem to want to make contact with my old uh, comrade uh, uh, who went by the name Terry R. Wrist. If he's still alive, I don't know what name he's going by now, but. Um, uh, I, I don't know whether the person that contacted them under that name was him. However, I did, uh, true to the analysis uh, of the secret cipher of the euphonauts, I took the name Hellier, since it's the opposite end of Kentucky, although not the opposite end of the cave system, from where the... Um, the goblin case much much earlier had taken place and guess what came up what number came up for those who know the whole thalamic uh, shticklock as it's known in shticklock circles was um 93 the word hellier equals 93 in the secret cipher and what i've always maintained is that under that particular cave system there is something that causes, uh, sort of like ley lines in, in parts of the world, causes uh, profound, numinous experiences to take place. Now, there's some, <clears throat> some cave uh, uh, or caverns that, uh, that you can find some, quote, natural explanations for. But, um, uh, such as mine gases, which uh, that's what the canary in the coal mine used to be about. It's 
it can induce hallucinations. There's a, a place in Ireland called the Purgatory of St. Patrick, which people have visions in it, but it's probably due to some sort of uh, psychedelic gas that is natural to the uh, to the cavern, similar to what the uh, the the oracle at Delphi uh, used to uh, produce their visions. In any case, I heard that uh, about the Bell Witch Cave as well. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Yeah. But it isn't true of all caves. Uh, you, you'd have, no, all, no. all you'd have to do is talk to a, a few spelunkers, and they don't have that type of experience. They yeah, do it's a science explanation. Yeah. I, I think uh, scientific explanations can be found if you work hard enough on for just about anything, but that doesn't make them true. That just means that you're looking, especially... Allen's rule for dismissing scientific explanations. If they give more than one explanation, particularly if there are several that conflict with one another, they don't know. They, they are not, uh, they're just looking for something. Uh, the the uh, professional skeptics community is very guilty of that. Uh, right, but, and and those, all those different theories are confined to the model that they're following. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you have to take for granted that they've got a correct model of the universe, which in fact they don't. <laughs> is very much under challenge inside orthodox physics yeah, now, yeah, which it. is something that I talk about a lot uh, to my readers because um, I feel that that's something that people need to consider. It's not that uh, science has not had its benefits. It certainly has, but it's also had its downside boom, you know, it may even be our our undoing. And it isn't necessarily a final view of the universe because it changes constantly. I mean, we had a view of the universe that was totally different until, until there were uh, orbital observatories uh, or telescopes that uh, have completely changed our view of the universe, including we're going to hit, get hit by an asteroid any time now. Well, that's always been true, and mostly it doesn't happen. But if you're looking through a telescope in space like the Hubble, you become aware of them, and then all of a sudden it's like, uh, you know, you're about to take a flight, you notice all of the news about plane crashes because they leap out at you and you think, oh, this is an omen. And it's not necessarily an omen. It means that you're attuned to, you know, to, the, to that particular thing. So uh, science is not necessarily the arbiter here. And I also think that the professional skeptics have a vested interest in being skeptics. And I say that knowing a few of them that uh, uh, I knew Philip Class pretty well. And uh, I know the amazing Randy. Uh, James Randy, who... I'm sorry. You're sorry that I know it? <laughs> <laughs> I heard he was a dick. No, not to me, oh, actually. Very um, cool, then. Uh, when I met him, he was getting off a plane from the Nazca lines, and something you won't see today, he had a pistol strapped on his side, because he had just been out, you know, in the wilds of uh, uh, southern Peru uh, doing some exploration. And he invited me and uh, my friend Don, I think, out to his house in New Jersey and showed me the stuff that he and Jim Mosley had stolen from the New York World's Fairground. Uh, <laughs> and 
pretty impressive stuff. I mean, it took a lot of hauling away. Uh, but then a couple of days later, he was at the UFO convention that year, and uh, he, uh, we were in Gene Steinberg's room. Yeah, that's right. We were in Gene Steinberg's room. Gene was, uh, um, he, he said to me and to Gene, you know, this guy, Ted Sirios, I can prove that what he's doing is an illusion. I said, how can that be? He has dozens of people and trained observers surrounding him when he produces these thoughtographs, uh, uh, thought photography things. Mm -hmm. And he's also drunker than shit when he does <laughs> it. So I think any sleight of hand would be uh, very, very difficult in that level of inebriated state. He said, no, no, let me prove it to you. So he said, uh, hold up uh, your Polaroid and uh, I forget who held it up, but uh, one of us, not me, uh, held it up, and he goes, look at his split, shazam, whatever he said, and sure enough, a light shines on the, uh, well, that is not what Ted Sirius did. So I said, do that again, because we were in a similar configuration, although with less expertise and certainly no preparation, to the people that had observed Ted Sirius taking these fantastic photographs of distant locations. Um, <clears throat> so um, he did it a second time. Now, I will give Randy credit when he was an actual magician, a stage magician, instead of a debunker, professional debunker, so to speak. Um, he was a good magician. He was good for his generation. He wasn't David Copperfield and he wasn't Houdini, but he was good. He was a good escape artist. I caught him the second time what he was doing. He was palming this little uh, uh, flashlight thing um, in his hand and holding that up and then disappearing it by the you know kind of standard card trick sort of method. So I said, Randy, he's been viewed by circles of people, scientists and porters and detectives and so forth, uh, hundreds of times and never been caught palming anything. And I caught you, a professional magician, the second time that you did it in similar circumstances. And I don't remember what his response was. It was amounted to, oh, well, the next morning, the next morning, he was on the Today Show showing his proof that Ted Sirius was a fake by holding up to the television camera the same thing. Now, if he were an honest broker of these things, he would have said, uh, on the other hand, last night, and you know, told the story. I mean, I'm not. I get fooled by magicians. I've been fooled by Siegfried and Roy and... and uh, and other lesser lights. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm easy prey for, for that. But I spotted him right away. And I think that's fairly typical. If you want to find these explanations that keep you, keep your feet firmly on the ground and keep things basically in 19th century science, you can find them, but they're not necessarily viable. And in fact, they're often a lot less viable than um, than the 
uh, more esoteric explanations for things. Yeah. And there, and in that, there is a great esoteric oh. truth. But I don't want to get wait, 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 too far away from the thing cave. Plus, the, okay. when, Sorry, when things are debunked quickly like that, it cuts off future thinking about it. For most exactly. People, so. What I was saying about the Hill case was it opened up for a lot of people that had already had similar experiences. So whether the Hill's experience was a product of hypnosis and mm -hmm. bad dreams or whether it was for real. Or social engineering it, program. Yeah, or as the case may be. A lot of other cases, which may be one of the other as well, uh, have turned up. And uh, in fact, John Keel uh, coined a term, silent contactee, for people that uh, have had these experiences, but for, I hope, obvious reasons, have not chosen to come forward with them, except when they get uh, a lot of publicity, some people get emboldened to say a lot more about it. But... Yep. We wanted to get back to what I dreamed on Thursday, November 11th, yes. 1961. Before I get in trouble. <laughs> You're not Before in trouble, Jerry, but... <laughs> become the skeleton in the closet. Keeping you two on track is a challenge. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so back to the caves and the idea of portals and interdimensional stuff through caves. And I, I'm, I've got a thread here I'm following. Okay. So you so we were specifically talking about when you were 12 or 13, right? And the Morlocks, all this stuff. And you came out of that and and we started you started talking about your ideas of of portals in caves uh there before we got off on this uh the Randy stuff. Mhm. Mm so can you take us back and give us an idea? What are your thoughts on interdimensionality or the caves as portals, aside from the possible explanation with gases and all that, which we all agree upon that, you know, do exist. Of course, it's real. The canary in the, the coal mines, a you know, long honored tradition. Well, uh, one thing that I uh, uh, fairly quickly realized after that was that the conventional, conventional may be the wrong word to use there, the standard explanation for uh, UFOs and adjacent phenomena, uh, which is the nuts and bolts theory, the, uh, the, uh, the ETH. Yeah, the extraterrestrial hypothesis just did not fit the, the evidence. First place is a good sociological question about why was that leaped to or leapt to or clat to, something like that. Concluded. Concluded when all of these things are seen on, near, or under the earth. Nobody has ever seen a, unless you talk about Oumuamua. The alleged asteroid? <laughs> the alleged asteroid. And or a research vehicle that decided that life here wasn't worth spending more than a few weeks before getting the hell out of Dodge. But um, uh, if, we, if we exclude that, we don't know anything about 
first they were saying they were from Mars. Well, we've sent probes to Mars. Mars doesn't appear to have any current living forms, and they would be so radically different that they definitely wouldn't be using spacecraft as we understand it. And then it went to uh, the nearest stars, but I think most people that talk about that have no idea of the complications and the vast distances involved there. It's not the first explanation you'd, you'd, you'd go to, and yet it was what people, a lot of people, leaped to as early as 1947, 40, um, a year or two before that, BSRA, um, under uh, uh, Mead Lane, who was a great uh, magician, as well as what eventually came to be called ufologist, um, uh, said these are from other dimensions. I started to think more in terms of that because natural explanations didn't work in the best cases. They just simply did not work. Um, on the other hand, there was a body of evidence that in certain places, under certain circumstances, a host of weird phenomena range, ranging from Mothman to flying saucers with uh, uh, little hairy men in them um, have manifested. Now, whether what we're seeing or what you know, the witnesses, the recipients are seeing is the actual phenomena or not, I don't know. Caves and caverns, certain caves, certain caverns, are among those places on the surface of the earth or just beneath the surface of the earth where these these phenomena frequently occur so it seems to me that there's got to be some kind of relationship between the two because statistically speaking if you go to some place that has no caverns underneath and has good visibility in the sky and there are no more than the average number of uh of strange phenomena, uh, sighting and apparitions during the course of a year. Um, obviously, that it isn't a particular area of interest. But if you go to some of these areas that are hot spots or periodically become hot spots, um, such as uh, under the cave system that starts in eastern Kentucky and goes all the way to West Virginia, conveniently located not very far from where. Uh, for a while, it looked like we were in another dimension. I mean, uh, John Keel and my friend, the, the late Gray Barker, were among the people that were right on the scene for that. And it was very clearly uh, the case that in West Virginia, it was like uh, realities had uh, blended our reality, uh, what we take to be our reality, and some other reality that has Mothman and Men in Black and UFOs and uh, disastrous occurrences, and then they're they're not there anymore, only to show up again in, let's say, Eastern Kentucky, which is, you know, pretty close and uh, above the same cavern system. So it doesn't take too much of a leap to say, A, that caverns and strange phenomena are in some important way linked, and B, my own cautionary note, can be dangerous. 
because uh, caving is not an amateur sport. It is definitely something that you need certain equipment for. People get, even experienced cavers get trapped frequently. Uh, it's like these idiots, and I'm going to call them that, uh, that are climbing Everest just because, yeah. just because, and uh, it, it looks like, you know, they're in, uh, on the queue for, uh, for food stamps or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's vertical, and that's not, you know, I... I saw that picture. It was pretty crazy. That picture, I don't know if it's isolated, you know, and it's just that area, but if it's like that all the way up, why go? I mean, it's no longer, you know, it's not Edmund Hillary and and, and two Sherpas. It's uh, hundreds of people, and it's very dangerous. And it's true of caving, so. Uh, Well, you you had me thinking there about the caves, and I was, the thought occurred to me that, the when you're in a cave you're surrounded by rock and those rocks are given off a, a frequency of some sort of course and you're being bombarded with that frequency maybe that puts your mind into that altered state of consciousness naturally which i think cannot manifest these things yeah i would be more inclined to believe that than to to credit something like um uh, <laughs> that gas. you're actually going to some other some other locale that uh, is beneath the earth and that uh, is physical in nature. I think that's a, a variation of the nuts and bolts theory. That's yeah. what Shaver believed. And with all due respect to him, um, I think he was a marvelous storyteller and I think he was on to something, but I think his conclusions were based on the fact that he was a very practical man and a welder. And so he took it into his own, universe Mm. mine is a little different so let's so with all this let give us an idea of and this is an expansive idea of the dreamscape as you experience it and have experienced it through the at this point the totality of your life and how things may have changed and i think firstly we want to look at the sensate stuff you know, color, taste, sound, you know, all that kind of nuts and bolts stuff. And then possibly the landscape of it before we get into states of lucidity. Well, my, my dreams have changed over the years. Um, I have recurrent dreams, and that's something that has always been true. And uh, if you'll name a period, I'll tell you what I remember about the dreams of that period. It, it won't give you something that's anomalous, but it will give you uh, something that it was repetitious. Uh, and that may tell you something about uh, uh, my dreamscape, as, as you so well put it. So I, I guess the best way maybe to break this down would be, let's take it in three stages, very early, which you've given us a good deal, you know, you've given us some good stuff there, and then mid, and then up to modern times with the ch- dissolving childhood house. But I'm going from the cave, so here's the thread I'm following. I'm going from the cave experience and uh, being inside the earth and so this doesn't have this doesn't be any woo not inner earth but just just bear with me uh to to 
your inner world and uh, exploring lucidity through the portal of dream and your inner world where eventually we'll get to possibly OBEs and all that other stuff. So let's start with, we got a good, actually we do have a good deal of the early you. Let's do the mid you. So, uh, and unless things really changed, I don't know. This is why I said, this is why I came in with the totality of your life. I was looking for maybe overviews. So has the landscape, let's go specific, has the landscape, how has the landscape, the architecture in your dreams changed over your life? Let's start there. Well, uh, my dreams have always tended to be on the dark side. That's definitely true. I mean, I've had my share of... uh, sexual fulfillment dreams and I've had my share of adventure dreams but uh, they tend to be dark-sided when I was uh, 13 or 14 uh, I was in New Orleans with my parents and uh, I was in uh, I was across the uh, what they call it well Canal Street on the American side Um, and I had a dream about uh being buried i wasn't dead but i was buried and i could see through the earth above me and there was my father floating in the air and he was dead and i knew that he was dead although he didn't appear dead in the dream and i woke up and the next day for the first time in my life i became aware of death uh and i was scared to death by it and i approached my parents with it uh at lunch i gave some money to charity (laughs) i mean (laughs) i went i went through the whole thing if there had been a synagogue in the neighborhood i probably would have run over to the shul and how old were you at this point helen i 14 15 uh, maybe a little younger than that i don't know it kind of um, since we went to uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast and to New Orleans pretty frequently, just because my parents liked to travel and because it was part of my father's job to travel and he liked to take his family with him, um, um, I can't really distinguish one from the other, but I can distinguish the experience because I think it was the first time I had actually stopped in New Orleans. And I remember uh, my parents didn't fly. and. Uh, they had no wings, and <laughs> but so we always took the train, which now I think of as a nostalgic experience because that train still runs, and I've even taken a couple of my kids on that same train. But uh, anyway, we passed through New Orleans on our way to Dallas, I think, and my father was opening a store there or something, and I was looking at the um, the above ground tombs that they have in New Orleans. There's a you know a reason for that. The the uh, water table is very close to the surface. So you really can't bury people six feet under. It just you you will hit water before that. So there are these very picturesque above ground uh, uh, tombs, some of which have legends attached to them and uh, um, they it had an effect on me at the time, looking at them through the train window of 
being uh, uh, gothic in the negative sense, I guess you would say, or spooky or uh, laden with uh, uh, negative emotions. And we went on to Dallas, we came back, we stayed in New Orleans a few days, and that's when I had that uh, morbid dream and uh, had my first realization of, of the existence of death. I also wrote a fairly good poem about that, uh, which somewhere or other I have. But um, <clears throat> that was the kind of dream I had in my teens, that was more intense than most non-supernatural dreams, but it was uh, a dream of, of uh, finality. Then when I got somewhat older, I began to have, um, uh, just talking about this earlier today, um, the kind of uh, hypnagogic uh, um, experiences that one has when waking up from the dream state relatively abruptly and your eyes are open and you're more or less conscious. And the early ones that I had of that sort <clears throat> were spectacularly beautiful. For one, on one occasion, I was sleeping in our uh, den and because uh, I wandered around the house like a nomad. Um, uh, from room to room and just slept somewhere different all the time. And uh, it was this beautiful butterfly, huge, far bigger than anything that was real. And it had beautiful uh, patterns on its wings, but the patterns moved. And again, they were in electric colors. Um, <clears throat> I had done no psychedelic drugs at that point in my life, and nor have I ever since, but uh, not even, you know, nothing nothing to write home about, as it were. Um, after that, um, I began how, to- How old were you in that, this, this stage with the hypnagogic stuff coming on? Late teens. Okay. And it continued into my 20s, and then it mutated into a recurrent dream that eventually changed. I'll give you both versions of it in the order that they- took place, but this is condensing it from like several years experience. Um, the first version is, uh, I'm in New Orleans, and this is hard to do if you don't know the geography of the French Quarter, but uh, um, I almost said Duval Street, which is in Key West, and it's a very similar street, but uh, <laughs> Um, let's see, um, Bourbon Street is where all the, um, well, I guess it's it would not even be a novelty now, but they used to have, uh, uh, transvestite shows and they would, they had girly shows and lots of bars and <clears throat> an open, open container policy. And it has an 18th century look that they've maintained. The next street over, Rue Royale, Royal Street, which is where I often stayed for science fiction conventions in that period, um, which would be late, late teens through mid-20s. Um, 
I used to stay at the Montleone Hotel, which is kind of a famous place. In the dream, Bourbon Street is illuminated by lurid red lights. And I'm walking down Bourbon Street. This is over and over again. And there are all of these alluring naked girls in windows, upstairs windows, which is unfortunately not the way Bourbon Street really is, but it, it's suggestive of that. And I'm taking an interest, but I don't do anything about it. I just walk down the street and wake up. Sometimes, though, I decide that I'm hungry. Now, there are a lot of really fine restaurants uh, on Bourbon Street, but I go over to this dream Royal Street one block over, and it's a different it, – it, it, um, I even – now that I think about it, I occasionally still have this part of the dream. The whole street is lined with exotic restaurants of every description that you can possibly have. It's like condensing all the great restaurants in New York, large and small, important and unimportant, into one block. And this block is has a blue light cast to it. And I'm walking down the street and... Um, I sit down at an outdoor cafe and order something. I don't remember what. I don't think they're really, I ever actually say anything. And I always wake up before I eat anything. Then the dream mutated for several years. You're going to like this part. Into I'm walking through downtown Atlanta. Now we're getting up now into the uh, late 1970s, early 1980s. But in the dream, it's the Atlanta of the early 1950s. And I'm walking down Peachtree Street, the main drag in Atlanta. And you could take that in many different ways. And uh, as I'm walking down the street in its conventional capacity for a pretty bland in that period, which is pretty much a reflection uh, of the way it actually was at that time, I start to notice one after another. Uh, establishment of a Chinese nature, as if in a Chinatown. And I walk down towards the uh, uh, place where Peachtree and West Peachtree divide, and I am in a Chinatown. Now there is, well, I'll get to that in a minute. And again, there's an outdoor cafe, and I think this is great really exotic. It's like New York and San Francisco rolled into one. This is, and uh, the number of neon, it, it looked like a, um, looked like Bangkok or, or Tokyo uh, in the uh, commercial or the uh, entertainment district. So I sit down at this outdoor cafe and order something, something exotic, if I remember correctly. And of course, I don't get to eat. I wake up hungry. <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that, but the neighborhood that I was living in at that time <clears throat> um, in Atlanta um, had no resemblance to a New Orleans slash Key West type atmosphere or Charleston or any of that. It's, it's not a personality town. Um, 
certainly had no Chinatown. There was one Chinese restaurant in Atlanta, Long Beach Street, but it catered to a non-Chinese crowd. And I lived uh, well removed from that. And uh, I started to notice that one Chinese establishment after another was opening up in my neighborhood. It's called the Garden Hills neighborhood. And it didn't, it was not lost on me. This was after I had gone through this dream cycle, more or less. Uh, a few, few years later, I noticed this is turning into Chinatown. This is really cool. It's turning into my dream. And it did turn into a mini Chinatown on Cheshire Bridge Road. It, is less so now. It's more an international place, but there is a Chinatown in Atlanta now. It's called that on uh, Buford Highway in Atlanta, and um, it's mostly Vietnamese. It seems like. Well, no, that, that, that's a separate. It's interesting. There's Chinese, there's Vietnamese, there's Korean, and then there's now I notice an emerging uh, Arabic. Yeah, Arabic. Arab, well, the yeah. Mexicans are. There are lots of Mexicans in Atlanta. And uh, there's a separate part of town where there is a, the second largest uh, population from India in the United States. So this has gone from being a uh, uh, eggs and bacon city to being uh, a city that has, at least where foods are concerned, a lot of exotic things. Absolutely. And that was, of course, the point of my dream. So. Make of it what you will. I anticipated, in some cases, by 15 years. And then begins your career as a futurist. <clears throat> well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I never thought of it that way, but I suppose so. It, well, it, that's what's remarkable so far about this, you having logged in enough years that, like we saw earlier, 40 years for a dream the blue boy, your son, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then all this to transpire. This is really remarkable stuff because you do have the years behind you to see this fulfillment of stuff that was seeded somehow in your unconscious, wherever this Pythian, Sibylian, uh, Oracle type uh, seeds going on. I'm finding the red and blue very interesting in this particular dream series as well, in the in the old Nola of your dreamscape. From, you know, Rue Royale, bourbon over there that sounds like Amsterdam to me with the ladies in the windows. Yeah, yeah. but Amsterdam in the last 15 years. Right. It's not the way Amsterdam was classically, if I understand correctly. And um, yeah, you're you're quite correct. But I never even thought of that comparison. Yeah, it fits. But it was I was having that dream a long time before Amsterdam became a. In those days, Sweden was supposed to be the the European decadent place, which it never was. But in, in context, yeah. <laughs> in the late Hugh Hefner's mind, projected out on his readers, <laughs> that's the way it was in Sweden. You know. So, all right, and and so let's move. So this is two peer. When's the last one in this second series that brings us up to what age 
age range? Hmm. Let's say over over 40. Okay. And then let's look before we move on to 40. So let's let's make it from 40 until recently, really. And um, where we move into the dissolved childhood house stuff. Okay, that would be the end game. By the way, I skipped one type of recurrent dream that I had as a kid. Oh, we want I, that. We yeah, want that. Okay, I would, and a lot of children had this. I was raised by the um, Dr. Spock, not Mr. Spock, the Dr. Spock uh, Baby and Child Care book. And I, the first edition came out the first uh, the year I was born. So it was, you know, my mother, that was what she picked up and that's what she raised me uh, by because it was the trendy thing to do with uh, early baby boomers. And uh, uh, Dr. Spock later became a kind of a hero to people in my generation because he's one of the few elder people who uh, uh, supported the anti-Vietnam War movement. And that was very important to a lot of people in my generation, particularly boys, particularly boys who were subject to the draft for some some reason that uh, leave to the imagination. So um, in the first edition of the book, which I read when I was a teenager, I because uh, I wanted to know what my mother was, <laughs> what was up, um, there's no mention of nuclear war. In the last edition, which came out uh, shortly before his death, when he had a co-author, there's a whole section on nuclear war dreams. Well, I had them, and apparently there were enough other kids that were having them that he was, by the 1970s, he was writing, you know, messages for parents how to deal with children's nuclear war dreams. In my dreams... Up through a certain point, I dreamed that I was looking in the direction of the horizon and the sun was setting, so it's probably the west, assuming we were on Earth, and uh, there was a second sun. And the second sun was a nuclear bomb. And I felt myself dissolving as the heat from the bomb reached me. And I would always wake up right after I. Uh, melted into the, or dissolved is probably a better term. Um, I had that dream many, many times. The last time I had it was much, much later and towards the end of the Cold War. I dreamed that I was uh, telling this dream to a psychiatrist. And I get up from the couch and I walk over to a um, old-fashioned um, household movie screen, the kind that people used to uh, uh, show their uh, 8mm or 16mm home movies. And the movie, don't laugh, the movie Freud <laughs> was on the screen. And as oh I'm, my God, that's perfect. <laughs> yes. And as I'm watching behind the screen, I see this bright light. And I thought, oh, no, it's the nuclear bomb again. And again, I dissolve. And that was, you know, that was 
much, much later in life. I think it was a kind of a resolution of that. And uh, after the Cold War ended, not that the threat isn't still there in one way or another, uh, I haven't had that, that dream since. The interesting thing, and you can take this to your own shrink if you care to, but the interesting thing is it was not an unpleasant experience. The dissolution was uh, quite pleasant. Make of that what you will. <laughs> and, and so on this one, what period was this? This you said younger? Oh yeah, that was that was that dream started probably when I started high school, and I should explain that the high schools around here in those days started in the eighth grade. There was no middle school or junior high. You went straight from grammar school to high school, where you were a sub freshman, and and you went straight from graduating into the army and got shipped off to Vietnam. It's a natural order of things, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not for me. I got out of the ROTC my own way and got out of the draft another way that won't be mentioned uh, this evening. Was Second Son a common name for that? Uh, No, I don't believe so. But I I will tell you that many years later, when Pink Floyd did the song, Two Sons in the Sunset, Mm -hmm. it freaked me out because the imagery was, you know, of a second son. And uh, a couple of occasions I've actually seen uh, sunlight reflected at an event that I was attending. And I thought, this can't be a good omen. Actually, I, I don't think there's any correlation at all. But um, you could see the sun, and then you could see the reflection of the sun. And I thought about that song, and I thought about the dream, and mm-hmm. had a sort of ominous uh, quality, as the song is intended to. Yeah. Well, I find it significant, personally. That is that is very interesting. Let's move into modern, or, you know, the later half, I guess. And because I want to give some good time to to this dissolving childhood stuff and we haven't even touched on levels of lucidity and all that good juicy stuff uh let's see this is a hard era to talk about because uh, it starts out on a very bad note i got my doctorate from the university of arizona and uh, my first marriage broke up and I uh, went to a lawyer to see what my options were. And he said, take your son and get across the state line. So I got a, my mother wired me some money and I got on a bus. And uh, there was my second mistake because it was 72 hours on a through bus from Tucson, Arizona to Atlanta with my son totally, you know, shell-shocked and talking constantly because he was shell-shocked. And me, shell-shocked too, you know, it was a bad situation. And um, uh, there was a brief period where, uh, well, I don't want to talk too personally about it, but my ex and I tried to put things back together. 
Uh, and uh, being back in Atlanta after having spent a thousand years uh, in college, <laughs> at least a thousand years, maybe two thousand. <laughs> there's a book there. <laughs> thousand and one. No, there's no book there. There's no <laughs> book. What's... Yeah, there's what, a series of books. No, there's more like uh, um, the only relief was when they showed a movie or or somebody from the Socialist Workers Party showed up and lectured or whatever. It was just, uh, it was not school. I, I was never meant for school and school was never meant for me, but I had nothing better to do. So, <laughs> or so I thought at the time. Um, so. I pick a doctor out of the phone book mistake because um, one should see a doctor now and again. And uh, I was very, very nervous about it because I don't necessarily handle unfamiliar situations with authority figures well. And uh, I probably two minutes before I got in his office, I probably had uh, high normal blood pressure, which is what I've had all my life. Um, but when he took my blood pressure, it was like lethal. It was uh, um, stroke level blood pressure. And I knew in my head that this was some kind of panic and not, in other words, it was an artifact of being terrified at the situation. Um, anyway, he put me on all kinds of blood pressure medication, and since apparently I did not have high blood pressure, every day when I would wake up, I'd try to get out of bed, and I would have orthostatic hy hypotension, I believe it's called, which is to say I would uh, black out because my blood pressure was so low that when I went from a, a, a supine to standing position, I there was no blood to go to my brain, so it was just uh, it was not good. And of course, I attributed it to the to the medication, and but I developed a really negative view of life at that point. Uh, wife number one was on the verge of leaving again with I'm not going to mention names with a with a a better boyfriend. I'm sure. Wait, was it and, Ron Hubbard? <laughs> no, okay, okay. no, nothing so esoteric as. <laughs> oh, at least that would be, you have some genius quality to it. No, just uh, some anarchist guy from up north, but that's okay. Um, better off for me and my kid. At least she left the kid with me. Um, so I'm in a very, very. Uh, down state, as you might imagine. I mean, this was, you know, my parents were together for their entire, well, my mother's entire adult life. And uh, my father, uh, I guess, you know, it's his only marriage. Uh, it was silent generation marriage, not a baby boomer marriage. So I, my expectations had been that it was for life. And I got over that because it wasn't. <laughs> and I've had many experiences that have confer confirmed that in later years. But I started 
I think the medications that I was taking until I went to another doctor and he said, you really shouldn't be taking these medications. They're for high blood pressure. You have low blood pressure. I said, I have low blood pressure and I'm taking all this medication. It may have had something to do with one of the medications. Having said that, the experiences were as real as they could possibly be. I would wake up abruptly and the first set of visions, I would call them, were of beautiful flowers on the opposite wall of the room. The thing is, they would last like, it's not like I was looking at my watch. I don't wear a watch to bed. Uh, beautiful flowers that were, were moving. They were, they were, they were kind of uh, living. Uh, and they had a very peaceful quality to them. And that went on for about, I guess, a week, 10 days, something like that. And I began to say, well, it's okay. I don't know if this is, you know, uh, um, just an internal episode or whether this is a view into something else that, uh, You'll recall the butterfly dream that I'd had much earlier spontaneously. It was just as real as that, maybe a little realer. Um, but then it changed. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and these monsters would be moving towards me from a position in the air. They would be moving towards me slowly but snarling and no sound but uh, uh and again in electric vivid colors scaring me half to death um i was not immobilized as some people who report experiences of this sort in fact after the second or third time i kept a flashlight next to me uh when i was asleep and when i'd wake up these things would be there and I'd shine the flashlight on them and they would dissolve. That went on for another week or 10 days. Um, then there was a single experience, which I consider to be a profound spiritual experience. I saw in electric blue, again, hovering above me, uh, what at the time I persisted in calling the god Shiva, although I'm not a, uh, I mean, my degree is in comparative religion, so I know a little bit about a lot of religions and not a lot about any except maybe my own. Um, but it appeared to be the god Shiva with a third eye in his head, and he hovers above me. This goes on for maybe 10 minutes, okay? Um, and I'm enthralled because he's he's moving his hand to his third eye and he takes it out of his head and he's offering it to me and it gets very close to me and I, I said to myself, I don't want this, I'll be different and it dissolved. And for years after that, I thought that was my, you know, my chance to ascend and I blew it by fear. Uh, I no longer think that because I've had other uh, non-dream experiences. 
But that was, you know, partly influenced by the fact that I really had a negative view of my life at that point. I don't mean that I was suicidal. I'm not at all suicidal. Homicidal sometimes, yes. Suicidal, no. But um, I really sort of, uh, my good sense said, you're okay. You're just taking too much medication from a quack. And the other part of me was saying, ah, oh, you're about to die or worse, have a paralyzing stroke or whatever. Um, just bad ideas that were going through my head. That broke when I saw another doctor and he said, this isn't the case. And I've been somewhat wrestling with that ever since, but uh, um, it's nowhere near where it was at that time. Um, after well, we'll call him Shiva. I haven't had any more experiences like that one, but I was much more able to do things with other people present of a um, magical nature, an occult nature, than I had been prior to that. I mean, I should say that all of this is during the period that. Uh, um, I became involved with uh, the occult order that we were discussing earlier and rose through the ranks there. And um, at that time, they were doing, uh, they had an odd view of the uh, other order that Alistair Crowley set up, the AA. Well, actually, he didn't set up the OT. Um, but they, they thought that the AA had ceased to exist on the outer, as the master of the lodge I belong to put it. So uh, we did the rituals of the AA, which are much more complex than anything in the OTO. Oh, am I giving away OTO secrets? Well, yeah, but you know, what are they going to do? Take me back in so they can fire me again? You know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Having a big deja vu right now, too. Yeah, but, oh, did you go through that? I'm having it right uh, now. Oh, well, we've spoken before, but in a previous <laughs> life or in a future life, since I seem to be up there. You are, you're moving in and out. <laughs> you want my third eye? I don't have one. <laughs> well, hand it over. You do. You just don't see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's still inside, but I can. Uh, uh, it's an any. Your little pearl. <laughs> <laughs> They're all innies to begin. With. <laughs> but through a thousand incarnations, it manages to be an Audi. Uh, that was one of the things that Philip K. Dick would wake up seeing uh, people with three eyes, which somehow to him was terrifying. To me, it was interesting, but it was a one-time thing. And he did die of high blood pressure, actually, but he was a, a speed freak. So, yeah. But you had low blood pressure. Yes. But, you know, that doctor was treating me for... For high blood, that's so crazy. He I was can't. treating me for what turned out to have been a panic attack, and uh, you know that's. I mean that. I don't. I, I was reluctant to go into that, but the context matters, and uh, these dreams yes. don't make any sense unless you realize I was really, you know, composing myself for the great beyond. And uh, yes, it's uh, very important. Yeah, 
Okay, so that brings us to current stuff, which would be the last 15 or 20 years. Some of these things that I, that you might argue were internally generated. Um, I was doing Enochian workings with the OTO Lodge that I was then the uh, uh, Lodge Master of. Those terms now reek to me. I mean, that's just master. What does that mean? You know. I no. love you for all your outspokenness in this, by the way. I, I'm with you. Thank you. So are a lot of people, even some who are in that organization, even some who are way up in that organization, which, you know, there was a book uh, called The Blood on the Altar, I think it was called. And it had the OTO as the great conspiracy to run the world, a little bit like the International Jewish Conspiracy. A lot like the international Jewish conspiracy, of which I am a charter member. You know, they, they <laughs> of want course. You, you know what? And then they give you this membership card. <laughs> Anyone who's listening, none of that is true. That's just <laughs> giving me the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> More like the Muladhara, but <laughs> snip. Congratulations, you're a member. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, add water and snip. <laughs> no, add wine and snip. Uh, yes, yes. I got the traditional form. I hear that my memory doesn't go back to that. Thank God Almighty Jesus. <laughs> Oof, that. Oh, yeah. But uh, in any case, I had a point there somewhere, but that's not the point. The point is gone. <laughs> My so mother. the Enochian workings in the last 20 years is kind of where we were. Yeah. And, and uh, once I became, I, and I said something that was important to me. I mean, um, I am affiliated with a whole group of free Illuminous lodges all over the world now. And we discourage the term master or anything smacking of, you know, somebody being holier than thou. Um, we like to use the term, if there's somebody who's, you know, setting things up or organizing things, we call them a facilitator because that's all they're doing. They're not in charge and they don't, you know, tell you what to believe and what not to believe. Unlike all of these. Right. Uh, with the Osa Felty and then, you know, God forbid you pay. <laughs> Well, there's a secret there, too. If you get up high enough, the fees on paper never get paid. You're not supposed to. But you're right, right. But it. you still do. Uh, no, no. No, no, no. After a certain, certain point, you stop paying. And, uh, and almost all of the funds are derived from the lowly uh, first, uh, third triad people that are just getting the, the basic, uh, what the Masons would call the Blue Lodge. Uh, right. Well, what I'm talking about is you're bound in further, you're bound, and, and by paying, you're strapped. I, I, know, I was trying to make an analogy there. Oh, yeah, well. It felt flat. <laughs> you only get strapped in a certain way that I will mention, but you do get strapped pretty hard there. You're used to, actually. They've gotten very... Uh, mm, litigiously conscious about I've seen some things that 
that's a whole different show. Um, oh, we want to have that show, by the way. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> Jerry and I, Jerry and I have another how show. Your, how is your legal staff? <laughs> Oof, oof, does. So this is a private conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, it's privately, I'd be glad to tell you everything because I do tell people everything, not out of any kind of bitterness, but out of nobody that leaves this madness says anything about it. You know, the the handful of people that were in the Branch Davidian say uh, they either still believe or they don't want to remember. Yes. You know, yeah. uh, It is a cult, in my opinion. And Mm -hmm. cults tend to uh, have a lot more ex members than members. And they tend to just wander away from it altogether. I think that's unforgivable because they're not an, an infinite number of people who have a talent for or an inclination towards or an interest in these things. In any case, we did the. uh, a lot of Enochian work in the uh, format of the uh, AA rituals. And uh, um, I would have a, deliberately, I would have a room full of people who had little or no experience with Enochian magic. And I would do um, what you might call an induction, which was several of the basic uh, Uh, and one not-so-basic ritual inductions in the AA curriculum, the last of which was Liber Reguli, and then uh, recite the Enochian call that we were doing. We were doing the 30 ethers one week at a time. It took us 40-some-odd weeks, but that's because of Christmas and stuff. In any case, um, I discovered that Once I did that induction, the person that I had, and I rotated this among a lot of people, um, so you could partly say that this was partly a magical experiment, but also partly a a scientifically controlled uh, mediumship sort of thing. Um, The person I had doing this scrying had remarkable experiences, which were more or less identical with the experiences that one has um, in some of the things that I talked about that I regarded as internal experiences, and also um, in line with other people's Enochian experiences um, in, the same, in the same ether, in the same level, uh, even people who were extremely skeptical. And um, we had some apports just as in mediumship, which I didn't even think about at the time because uh, I'm not a big fan of mediumship, not for any ethical reason. I just think that there's a lot of phony mediumship out there. Um, it, It seems like at some point in this whole cycle that we've been discussing, I transferred these internal uh, experiences into the external world and was able to meld it so that other people could experience it with me. And that basically brings us pretty much up to date, I would think. Um, uh, if you know, if you, uh, I, I have had experiences that I would 
call astral projection, but they weren't to any place. So there's really no way of confirming or disconfirming them. They were just more real than dreams. I would just become lucid in a dream state and aware that I was flying and traveling over always open country, always. And I would, it would, I would think to my, I'd be able to think, this is a dream, but it, the clarity of it is more real than real. And I don't even have my glasses on. So this is, this is uh, pretty profound, and I'd be able to examine it while it was going on. But I never got to any specific place. And that, that happens to me periodically. It's not something that, uh, you know, that I look for. I'm much more interested in the, the synchronicities and things that are an indication of the universe is somewhat, or the omniverse, as the case may be, somewhat more uh, complex and quite different from the standard expectations that people are taught to believe. Can you, so in that, I find that fascinating, by the way, that, uh, that lucidity, your experiences with lucidity, but I don't want to get away from, while we're still here, your, the vanishing, the dissolving childhood house, this stuff is fascinating to me. So as you're, are you comfortable talking about any of that? That's that's as current as it gets. It's as current as early this morning. I should specify that I am and have been pretty much all my life, except when, you know, school or work has made it not possible. I'm a total night person. So when I say I dreamed last night, I mean sometime during the day. Yeah, well, I got up at one today. I mean, I'm a night person with you. I'm a night owl. Okay. Well, uh, you're, you're, you're an early day person. I, yeah, I'm a morning person. If I didn't drink <laughs> lots of coffee, I would never, I wouldn't be up now. I'd be just, just <laughs> going through the coffee. But uh, anyway, so um, I started having these dreams. First of all, I'm uh, anyone who thinks that you make a great deal of money on books, even those that sell well. The only person that I know of who's ever made money on books is Stephen King. Everybody else is starving. You know, it's just not a, not a, uh, yes, one of those great myths. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I, I, I find myself laughing at it all. <laughs> the most money I've ever made for my books was, uh, the advance. Yeah. That, you know, now that I think about it, yeah. Uh, uh, if you're with a publisher that gives you a good advance. Usually that's, that's where most of your money comes from. Of course, uh, um, uh, I only deal with smaller publishers because my experience has been, if you deal with any of the more traditional publishers, the fact is that they're going to, um, um, you get like 5% or something like that. It's, it's not really, and, you lose certain rights to the to future editions yeah, and, and you, the foreign uh, editions and the translations and all that. Yeah. And the, the the largest publishers that I've dealt with have always wound up screwing me over. So um, I'm mostly interested in getting the information out. I, I maybe make a couple of thousand dollars a year on you know from 
yeah. royalties or residuals or whatever. And that's that's it. Have you checked out uh, Lulu? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not a typesetter, and I uh, Lulu made made uh, so many errors, errors. Southerners can't pronounce their middle R's, errors that um, that I actually had to take it off the market. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, uh, I, and that was after my going through it. But I'm not a proofreader, and the nice thing about dealing with you know outside publishers is they do the time yeah, right, they, they, yeah. they do the editing and they and they run it by you so i'm able to you know take a look but i will miss certain words and uh, uh, generally speaking things like lulu i gather because i haven't had any dealings with them since they first started that they um they must do only machine checks because they miss uh, synonyms and, and hom- they miss homonyms uh, and and words that are words, but not the words you mm-hmm. <laughs> wrote. So it's uh, and that's embarrassing. So um, I'm with uh, Paranoia Press and Blue Star Publishing. That's now. Olaf Phillips joint, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they do give royalties. <laughs> yes, yeah, great. That's fantastic. And yeah, everyone should get uh, Secret Ritual, The Complete Secret Cipher. This is a great book. Yes, please get The Complete Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. I don't get nothing for the individual editions that they send. And you can get it from all the major outlets. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, blah, 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 blah. Well, this is just great that it is all together. I mean, I, I think. You know, it was originally meant to be uh, one book, but because I got this huge after secret cipher, the Euphonauts came out from the late great Illuminate Press, which did pay very generous advances and they, they were very prompt and, you know, they were just great. But everybody that, uh, that was involved with Illuminate, died under mysterious circumstances that's a whole story in itself yeah yeah i mean uh ron bonds the publisher uh died under really suspicious circumstances and carrie thornley none of these people reached 60 you know and most of them were in their 40s uh jim keith died under ridiculous circumstances it's just and all within a space of a few years, uh, people were telling me to watch my back. I said, well, I don't do conspiracy theory stuff. I did an autographing session with uh, Jim Keith once, and he had all these people. It was a UFO convention, but there was a militia convention on the floor below. And he wrote books about black helicopters and militia stuff and UFOs. Okay, And you had both kinds of people coming up to his side of the desk for an autograph and whatever. And I thought, boy, he's he's playing it fast and loose. Well, he sprained an ankle at Burning Man and died. He was 47, I think, something like that. Uh, anyway, so but Illuminate was wonderful. They were they were the best. But 
they're gone. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. It is sad. So let's get back on the train. And I want to, I really, really want to hear about the uh, dissolving childhood house. It's provocative to me. And I think very significant in the totality of where we started with your dream life. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let me um, say this has been going on for a couple of years now. And the reason I mentioned that I, uh, I come from a well-to-do family, but my mother outlived my father by quarter century and uh, time and tide and uh, child custody and blah, 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 blah. I don't have anything anymore except royalties and the little kindness the government gives me from money that they took out of my paychecks for however many years. Forever. 400 years. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Forever. But um, um, at some point, I just completely ran out of money and was working in the art supply business, which is an education in and of itself. Um, eh, doing okay, but the very back break, 60 hour weeks. Yeah. Um, I started to have these dreams that were centered around uh, my father would come back from the dead, but he was he was unbelievably old. My father didn't get to be that old. He was he unfortunately he passed on at sixty seven and after a long and lingering illness. And my mother was in the dreams, but she was at her the oldest that she got to, which was quite old. Um, and I would have dreams about going to my grandfather's grave in this cemetery that does not exist. Um, a little Jewish section of the cemetery that was walled off as is quite true with my maternal grandparents. They're not even buried in the same. The Jewish population of Augusta got bigger and bigger and the municipal cemetery didn't get any bigger, so they had a little Jewish section that my grandfather was buried in, and then 20 years later, uh, my grandmother was buried in, a, in the newer Jewish section. Now there's a Jewish cemetery somewhere in Augusta. My relatives are all planted in the municipal cemetery. Anyway, this is not a cemetery that actually exists, but I go to this grave of, and somehow I know it's my maternal grandfather. and. That's all there is to the dream. I mean, that's, that's it, except that I have it recurrently. Then it slides into a separate dream, but in the same dream cycle. And I know that most uh, authorities on dreams say if it's in the same cycle, um, that is during the same REM sleep or whatever, it's, it's uh, in, in a certain sense, uh, uh, connected to the other dreams of that same cycle. Uh, I don't know what they would say about dreams that are this recurrent, but um, um, I would dream that I was back in Augusta, an Augusta that never was, but it was centered on 
one street, which is indeed was true in the Wayback Machine uh, uh, when I was a kid. I left there when I was 10 and have been back. And in fact, I wrote Secret Cipher and Secret Rituals in Augusta uh, uh, in the mid-1990s. And the second book was not published for 10 years after that because the leader of one of the great orders of antiquity jumped down my throat for writing a book on UFOs because it was not fitting for an occultist to write such a book. No kidding. You know, the occult is so much more respectable than flying saucers, right? It's so funny. I've heard you talk about that a lot, and it always makes me laugh. Well, it's so ridiculous. And, uh, you know, he's playing his jam session with Psychic TV on his uh, demo tape while he's giving me this lecture. And so I thought, well, you know, you either play the game or you don't. And now I don't. But then I did. So I put off publishing it for 10 years. So the combined edition is a really, really, really good thing. And Vengeance is sweet. It's almost, it's not unlike the division in the UFO community in some some respects. Well, that that is a a whole separate topic of discussion. True, 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 true. It, uh, I don't think there is a UFO community anymore as such. I think it's gone mainstream. And I don't know whether that's a mistake or whether that's a good thing, but I do know that it has profoundly changed what I was involved in when I was uh, organizing conventions. And and it, it basically is the same thing that happened with science fiction fandom. It became too big, too commercial, and I had to go to my mark before I did my program on. <laughs> and they took it away from us. <laughs> well, yeah, they did. Yeah. And I don't want to make it like sour grapes. I just no, question whether it's yeah. the efficacy. <clears throat> How much of that has anything to do with any theory other than nuts and bolts, flying saucers from outer space? Zero. That's right. Zero. Correct answer. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so I'm having this dream, and the dream in Augusta mutates to I'm going to visit some distant relatives of mine in some little town. I hesitate to say shithole, but that's what it was in Mississippi. And I don't have any relatives in some little shithole town mm-hmm. in Mississippi. It's a lot more complicated than I'm going to be able to go into, but suffice to say, I visit these relatives. One of my girlfriends shows up there, and it turns out it's her family. It just kind of mutates around. And that turns into this dream where I go back to the the house that I grew up in, which again is in this same section of Atlanta that I'm living in now. And um, my parents are there, but my father is has been dead, but he's alive again. However, he has a really bad heart condition. He didn't die of a heart condition. He didn't have a heart condition. I don't know anyone in his or my mother's family that that has been a major problem, at least not until really advanced age. And, you know, everybody's heart stops eventually, except the man who lived forever. 
I think it's the number one cause of death, actually. <laughs> no, it's not breathing that you not know. Breathing, yeah, right. It's it's in the top five. No, I know that. Fair indication, you know, if not breathing for more than twenty minutes, you're probably not coming back. And if you are, you're coming back with a oh. That's My a name zombie. Is Philip, what's yours? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or greetings, Earthlings. <laughs> I have inhabited this body in order to. So I'm in the house. something there. My mother, I mean, age is a theme in the dream. I'm sure it has something to do with my own wrestling with the fact that I am a 25 year old in a 73 year old body. That's the, that's the sleight of hand. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you can do it, do it. But um, I've got the brain of, a, of an 80 year old man and the body of a, a 14-year-old boy They're in the trunk of my car if you want to see him. Well, what were, you, what were we talking about? I sort of forget these, <laughs> these memories. Oh, yes, I was remembering. So, so I'm in the house, and I have spent many years. I even take people to see that house because it's a fabulous house. Also, it's uh, when my mother sold it, and she said, fairness to my father that she was going to sell it after he passed on but he passed on a lot sooner than anybody thought that he was going to he was a natural athlete not the sort of person you would think wouldn't live to be 90 you know but okay sarah sarah she sold the house that he had bought in the 1950s for thirty-five thousand dollars in a really 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 upscale neighborhood <clears throat> she sold it for 50 begging her not to sell it I probably would have lost it sooner or later, but she did. And I happen to be discovering that I am, by coincidence, living in the same neighborhood. I looked at the appraisal from the realty companies online, and it's now valued at a million. So seems <laughs> that that would have some effect on me at some some point. Also, they kept the name Greenfield on the mailbox for like 40 years. Uh, whoever bought the house, so I would I mean, have totally done that. <laughs> I don't think the thought never occurred to me because when I was a kid in that neighborhood, uh, we had this trick that we did because we had what they're what are called rural mailboxes, you know, the ones that sit by the curb, and we also had M80s, a type of device for celebrating uh, New Year's Eve or the 4th of July. But if you put them in a mailbox, it becomes tragic. This <laughs> is very tragic. It's like Not that I ever did that. Yeah. I just, it was the neighbor kids, the bad neighbor kids. The, there are bad neighbor kids in every neighborhood, Absolutely. even in Jewish neighborhoods. Um, right. Especially. Okay. No, sorry. So. Go. The house, while I'm talking to my parents and arguing about money, and that varies, you know, it's usually I'm asking my father for money because the police are after me and I want to escape to Australia or something like that. I mean, it varies. Sometimes I just want to go on a cruise, which shows where my head is at. Um, And the house starts melting around me. I was going to say disintegrating, but melting around me. And I realized this whole thing is a 
uh, an illusion. And of course it is by definition, it's a dream, but it's, um, it's only when, remember the nuclear dream that I dissolve in it? Well, this was sort of like, they say your house represents your mind. I think that's a Scientology thing, but nevertheless, sometimes they might get it right just by default and who knows. So uh, that's a very, very gruesome dream. And I'll wake up from that at two or three o'clock in the afternoon feeling like life is just done. And I'll crawl to the kitchen and get that really, really heavy coffee. And only then does life take on the sparkle that we, we all know and love, right? I'm looking at this skeleton image. Well, we're all skeletons in there somewhere. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> or, or we would roll down to the floor and really have a hard time even discussing. <laughs> okay, so that's my whole life to date. I can't guarantee what it'll be 10 years from now, or if it'll be 10 years from now, but I certainly hope so. so I'm going to the trail or going to Mars, so take that for what it's worth. Okay, and so with all this said, this is a good place on the dream, the dream stuff to to kind of wrap that because we did cover all that. I want to add that on on the next we want. I definitely want more from you, Alan. We're going to take questions, but I want more from you, and because I want to get into, and I know Jerry does too, get into some of the. ET stuff, well, all the other stuff. There's so much stuff. And now that we have this kind of basis uh, logged here with so much new content from you that that I'm thrilled to move forward. But I think at this point, it's we should ask questions of the chat. I'm sure there are many. Mm, we... I've got a couple. Okay. Um, there's one question somebody wanted to know. Uh, did you Back to the dream uh, when you're walking, was it peach tree where it split, right? And it was the blue street with the food. Did you ever go any further? Run that button again? The, the dream about the street with the Chinese food? Yeah, it was yeah. downtown Atlanta. Right, yeah. right. Did you ever go any further than that street? Did you go past it? Never. At the at the juncture of Peachtree and West Peachtree Street, there's a, a, a downhill that goes past the uh, Carnegie Library or used to. I don't know. Downtown Atlanta is a different world now. But yeah, um, crazy. I sit down right in front of where, now that I think about it, the Trick Novelty Store, which was one of my places to go when I was a kid. Uh, I love that. <laughs> yeah well not everybody loved the things that i bought because i needed to go for more the tricks than the novelties but <laughs> fake vomit <laughs> so th th this chinese uh, outdoor restaurant which actually i've never seen anything quite like that i sit down and i order and i wake up always unfulfilled is a common denominator in a lot of these dreams if you haven't noticed yes does that answer your question yeah totally 
the other question I had, which I wanted to ask, which is interest, more interesting than the, the second question. <laughs> Sorry, whoever asked that. Um, are you familiar with the work of Alan Green and his work on Shakespeare's connections to John Dee? No, I mean, I'm real familiar with John Dee's saga, but mm -hmm. uh, no. Uh, and I would certainly remember a name like Alan Green. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's, there are multiple Alan Greens in the, this genre or whatever, this area. So it's, it's an, an interesting theory. I'll send you a link. I think it was on Higherside Chats that had Alan Green on when he was talking about how he, his theory is um, that Shakespeare, remember, I don't even remember now the whole story, so I'm not even going to try and ruin it. But basically, whoever was, somebody was uh, pointing clues about Shakespeare using John Dee's cryptography. Oh, you know what? I have I have read something about that very recently. I just didn't associate the name with it. I mean, I I, I read the theory, and it sounds a bit like the uh, the cipher of the Euphonauts, but it's uh, after all, D dealt with uh, ciphers. That was a major part of his uh, uh, career uh, in the occult, anyway, right. and also his career as a spy, which is uh, right. Uh, interesting as well. But uh, yeah, I've read something about this like in the last couple of days, and I don't think I'm having deja vu. Synchro. <laughs> so then I have another question. This is more of a, probably a longer discussion for later, but, um, but going back to the number 93 and how it seems to come up around certain types of, let's just call it energy. Is it possible that that number represents a certain frequency or type of energy that influences the base reality in a certain way that manifests those things that we associate with 93. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably um, a, a fragment of the overall truth. You will see other fragments and things like the Fibonacci. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, there are certain... I don't think the universe is made up of numbers, as some mathematicians seem to think, but I do think that there is a mathematical quality in, I don't know, I almost said creation. That is, things that, that we may or may not know about, but which, which constantly uh, work on our reality so that it manifests in certain ways, and sometimes in certain unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. Now, that may be my quantum mechanics influence, or maybe my Philip K. Dick influence. I don't know. but uh, it, it really depends on what reality is. Well, what I'm saying is if reality is a manifestation of coding, reality <laughs> as we define it isn't reality. It's a uh, program. It's a program, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. a projection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very cool which is very possible you know yeah, that's uh, absolutely there I, are so many clues of that sort i mean what are the odds that certain numbers will come up at random random being an interesting term in and of itself mm -hmm. uh disproportionate to the infinite number of numbers that there are by mm -hmm. definition right 
but they do. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Crazy well, stuff. Some people call it crazy. <laughs> some people call it shining sanity. And some people call it God. <laughs> so here we go. Forbidden Planet, 1956. I love that movie. I was yeah, thinking about that earlier when you were talking about War of the Worlds. All right. Well, that, Alan, uh, did you want to plug anything before we say goodbye? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd really like to. Well, I, we've already, I think, mentioned the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts available <laughs> from all the usual outlets. But don't be put off by the title of God Never Does the Same Thing Twice as I never write the same book twice. And this is my book, Where I Go Gonzo. And we have the wrestling match between Jesus Christ and Aleister Crowley in the two out of three tag team match, winner take all. And we also, at no extra cost, I don't know what they're charging for it, but at no extra cost is General Patton's secret visit to Prague to find the golem in mm. 1945. Mm. I can't wait. Is this one out already? I thought it was. Oh, it's out. It's out. It's uh, uh, you can get it from all of the usual places. Actually, if you were at my door, I have about 14 copies here. The publisher is Blue Star is wonderful. I love those folks around Sacramento. But, uh, I, yeah, I'm, uh, that's on my list. It, it sounds wonderful. Of course, your writing is all wonderful. Well, yeah. this is different, though, so you may or may not like it. And I'm sure there will be readers who will get to the end of it where, well, I won't tell you what happens, but some people who are fundamentalists might not like it. I'm not a fundamentalist. Sure. Well, then you'll like it. Yeah. In fact, you'll <laughs> love it. You'll rave about it and buy copies for your friends and for a few of your enemies. And <laughs> oh yes, sprinkle them around. <laughs> and, and for anything else, in all seriousness, I, I say this a lot, but it, it it's really true. I've been on the internet so long that if you just Google my name and spell it properly, you will find tons of stuff about me. Some of it true, some of it not true. Some of it just interesting, and it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. That's A-L-L-E-N, Greenfield. I'm not going to spell it. If you can't spell Greenfield, you don't deserve it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Alan, for uh, spending time with us and coming on the show. And Thank you, Nish. Thank you, everyone who listened and stayed with us live. And we will see you next week, who we have uh, next week. John Tenney, right? John E.L. Tenney. Oh, that name is familiar. Uh, another UFO cryptid investigator. Ah, no wonder it's familiar. Yes, very interesting cat. Don't bring up my name because you might hear stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alan. This Thank has you. been a great pleasure. And as I said earlier, I want more. Uh, okay. <laughs> I need to serve me oh. another helping, please. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, I I'll be around as long as I'm around. How do I sign out of this? So hold on, <laughs> just hold on one second, and we'll, let me sign off of here. So, uh, thank you, everyone, and we'll we'll see you next. Time. So long, folks. Better be, better be. That's all, folks. Mm -hmm.